Well, if you have a Bible, Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. We're going to pick it up where we left off last time. We're going to see uh, our text develop from verse 7 down through the entirety of chapter 64. So we actually have about a chapter and a half in front of us here today that I would like to complete only because it's one big thought unit. And so we're going to study this. It's kind of part two of what we started last time, this prayer for prophecy. Recall that we are in this final section of the book of Isaiah from chapter 56 to 66, where God is spelling out his intention for redemption. First being true religion, that God, in light of the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ, intends to bring about true religion from the inside out, that he would transform us from the inside out via the new covenant, or the everlasting covenant is the term that Isaiah tends to use, uh, but it's the same idea with the new covenant of Jeremiah. But not only is the intention of redemption true religion, but also Zion's restoration, that God has a plan in mind for his people, which will not only bring about their restoration, but this final section from chapter 63 to 66 also talks about ultimate renewal, that God is not only restoring his people, the nation of Israel, the city of Zion, but he's also going to bring ultimate renewal to all of the earth, all of the cosmos. God is, uh, his intentions for redemption are cosmic in their scope. And so that's where we find ourselves is in this final section from chapter 63 to 66. And these first couple of chapters is what we began our examination of last week. We're going to hopefully conclude here this morning. But Chapter 63 and 4 are connected in that the first section of chapter 63, verses 1 to 6, is a prophecy of Yahweh coming in judgment. It is essentially that's what we focused on last time. We gave the entire hour to that last week, and it is talking about the second coming. Uh, the second coming of Christ. We went and paralleled that passage to a number of New Testament passages that demonstrate that reality that this is a, uh, a prophecy of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But that prophecy, which is the climax of history, when, when God returns to earth in a very uh, you know physical, visible sense in the return of Christ and the Shekinah glory that will hover, hover over Zion that we talked about back in uh, Isaiah chapter 60, that is what will bring about the ultimate renewal, which is going to be the subject of the last two chapters of the book of Isaiah, chapters 65 and 6. But in between there, in between the prophecy of the coming of Christ and what that will bring about, ultimate renewal, chapter 65 and 6, we have this prayer that Isaiah prays for Yahweh to come. And that's what we want to look at here this morning is from chapter 63, verse 7 till chapter 64, verse 12, the rest of chapter 64, we see this prayer of Isaiah where he is asking God to indeed come. In other words, and I like the way Grogan puts it, putting this prayer in its context, let me quote Grogan here. He says this, quote, since the start of chapter 60, Isaiah's prophecies have majored in the theme of Zion's exaltation, the final judge or the final fulfillment of all God's purposes for her. What effect would the reception of such visions have on a man who received them? No doubt they would fill him with a deep, almost agonized longing for their fulfillment, end quote. In other words, that, this, this prayer that is recorded that we're going to look at here this morning is Isaiah's personal response to the prophecy that has been granted. And in a, in, in a sense, it pictures for us what our response ought be, just as Jesus taught us to pray. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In light of the prophecies of what God intends for the future, what God will do to bring ultimate restoration and renewal to all things. In light of that reality, it ought drive us to our knees in in urgent, fervent, consistent prayer, a longing for Christ to come and to fix uh, you know, all this mess that we find ourselves in. And so this is, of course, the, the reaction of Isaiah, which ought be mirrored by us. Now, we've already overheard the prophet, Isaiah that is, engaging in prayer on the people's behalf a number of different times. And this is just a review. We're not going to go back through these for sake of time. But we've seen Isaiah, a very prayerful prophet, back in chapter 6, chapter 25, chapter 51, 59, and uh, 62. We see multiple times scattered throughout his prophecies where Isaiah receives a vision or a prophecy, a prediction of the future. But then he, he follows that up with an urgent plea for God to do it, that God would indeed keep his promises. We won't, uh, again, go there for sake of time, but this is a common reaction of the prophets. First Samuel chapter 12, for instance, we see Samuel responding in prayer. Jeremiah chapter 15, Amos chapter 7 are just a couple of other examples of similar prayers of the prophets. But the point is, it, it models for us how we too ought respond. In light of what God promises he will do, then we are to pray with a sense of urgency. Uh, and I didn't throw this in there, but remember Daniel, same thing. It says in Daniel chapter 9, he was reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, discovers that the Babylonian exile is going to last for, how long? 70 years, realizes the time is nigh at hand for the release. So what does he do? He immediately begins to pray. And that's Daniel chapter 9. The majority of that chapter is the prayer of Daniel that God would perform the prophecy that he promised to perform uh, in the book of Jeremiah. And so Daniel also models that. We read the scripture. We say, oh, look at what God is going to do. And then we say, oh, God, please come and help. And right, even the Bible itself ends with that sort of prayer by uh, the apostle John in the book of Revelation. Right, come quickly, Lord Jesus, he says in, in, in the final verses of, of the book of Revelation. And it's, it's that sort of reaction that we're witnessing here this morning and attempting to learn to model in our own lives. Now, before we begin our, our examination of the prayer itself, I just want to point out this basic thing that as we work our way through, you can see the parallels. But Isaiah's prayer here parallels Deuteronomy chapter 32 in both language and flow of thought. I've mentioned this many times, but Deuteronomy 32 is... Uh, called by some scholars the blueprint of all biblical prophecy. The blueprint of all biblical prophecy. In other words, it is the seed form that all later prophets are going to develop. It's the acorn that grows into the oak tree later in, in the prophetic books. But that thought flow of Deuteronomy 32, which recall is the song of Moses. It's a, the national anthem, if you will, for the nation of Israel. They were taught this song uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, and it is a, a very interesting snippet, snapshot of what Israel's history will be. It's a very important pinnacle prophetic section of the scripture, but here's a good example uh, of, of how, you know, I point that out often to try and encourage you to get very familiar with Deuteronomy 32. Uh, but nonetheless, it will help you in your study of the prophetic books to understand the basic thoughts. Well, here's a good example. Uh, is Isaiah's prayer is going to model that. So here's what we're going to look at. His prayer is going to subdivide into three major parts. All right, we're just going to take these one at a time and uh, try and comment through them as best we can, as much as time will allow. 
First, we're going to see in chapter 63, verses 7 to 14, we're going to see Isaiah's prayer of remembrance. His prayer of remembrance. Just like Deuteronomy 32, he's going to begin by reminiscing on the goodness of God, the greatness of God, what God has already done in history. Well, then he's going to follow that up with a prayer of petition. Chapter 63, right around verse 15, and this will go through chapter 64, verse 5, or at least the first portion of verse 5, we're going to see his prayer of petition. That after he remembers how good God is and all that God has already done, he then shifts to his present situation saying, oh God, please do it again. Act on our behalf right now. Well, then we'll see his prayer of penitence. Chapter 64, verses 5, or the latter part of that verse, to verse 12. We're going to see this idea that he's recognizing that although he wants God to work, he wants God to keep his promises, he recognizes that he himself and they as a people, Israel, is defiled in their sin. That the biggest thing that stops God's working is the sinfulness of his own people. And so he asks for God's grace and forgiveness so that they you know, can see the fulfillment of God's promises. And so it's a very profound prayer that is instructional for us. And so let's just take it a chunk at a time. All right, so if you've got your Bible, 63, Isaiah 63, verse 7, let's read down to verse 14. Isaiah says this, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed upon us the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children that I will not lie. So, or children that will not lie. So he was their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name, that led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble. As a beast goes down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So did you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name? Pause there. Now, again, verses 7 to 14, I put underneath the heading of the prayer of remembrance. So Isaiah begins his prayer by mentioning, as you can see in verses 7 through 9, he mentions the tender compassion, the loving kindnesses of Yahweh and his faithfulness to the covenant promises. This is a very similar opening to Deuteronomy 32. We won't go there for sake of time, but just jot that down. Do your own comparison later. But verse 9 is is of interesting note because it's one of the most moving, as one scholar put it, moving expressions of the compassionate love of God anywhere in the Old Testament, reminding the reader of some of the great passages, for instance, in Hosea, which is, recall, he's, he's contemporary with Isaiah, though he's probably older. He's been, he ministered uh, first. He started ministering before Isaiah, but they were contemporary. In other words, notice how it begins in a very heartwarming acknowledgement of God's loving kindness, his praises, all his great goodness toward the house of Israel, his mercies, the multitudes of his loving kindnesses, all of that's verse 7. And, and he describes how he is, God is the savior of his people. 
and in their affliction, verse 9, he was afflicted. In other words, God has such a, a loving affection and attachment and connection with his people that when they suffer, he suffers, right? That's the idea. We see that many places in the scripture, perhaps most notably, at least in my mind, we see uh, the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. Remember this? And then he says to Jesus appearing to Saul, says to Saul, why do you persecute me? Right? And it's like, well, wait a minute. Who's, who's Saul actually persecuting? He's persecuting Christians. But Jesus feels it as a personal affront. Right? That's the idea. Is there so much of a loving fondness and connection and affinity, affection uh, for God and his people, you know, God for his people, that their affliction is his affliction? So what does he do? The angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He bare them and carried them all the days of old. It's very interesting. Uh, both Exodus chapter 19 describes that idea that they were carried by God on eagles' wings. Uh, Deuteronomy 131 likens God to a father who picks up his child and sticks him on his shoulders to get them through a difficult time. And that picture, I was just the other day, uh, you know, playing out in the back with my kiddos and my kids can't keep shoes on, right? And so they're, they, they peel their shoes and then they run out there and then they hit a sticker bush. You know what I'm saying? And so immediately they call, daddy, 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 can you pick me up over the stickers, right? And it's kind of like, okay, right? But that's the picture of what God does for us is that, you know, he picks us up and he carries us through the difficult times. That's the way God pictures himself and his relationship with Israel in Deuteronomy chapter one. Well, here Isaiah uses the same image, is that you've carried them from days of old, right? God is such a good God, but is that mirrored by his people? Absolutely not. Verse 10 to verse 14 demonstrates the ingratitude and unfaithfulness of Israel, which is then what becomes the emphasis of his of Isaiah's remembrance. And again, this is the same thing with Deuteronomy 32. You could go to a number of other places like Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Psalm 107 are going to record this same sort of history, Psalm 78. Uh, there's so many Psalms, portions of the scripture that will review this. God's goodness, his greatness, and yet his people's ingratitude and unfaithfulness towards him. So verse 10 says, but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was he turned to be their enemy and fought against them. Note especially this verse 10. Um, this is believed by many scholars to be the Old Testament background for a New Testament verse that we're, uh, I mean, we will eventually get to. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, right? We're in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2 this morning. Um, you know, we're going to get there eventually. But in Ephesians 4, 30, uh, verse 30, it describes how we are to not grieve the Holy Spirit, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not original with Paul. It's believed by many that Paul is probably quoting or alluding to Isaiah chapter uh, 63 here in verse 10, or perhaps Psalm 106 verse 29, which says something very similar, that God in his grace came to his people, delivered his people out of the, uh, you know, Egypt and the Exodus, brought them through the Red Sea, etc., and yet they respond with ingratitude, with, with unfaithfulness. They're loyal to other gods, other deities, rather than Yahweh. And so it, they grieved his spirit. They wounded him, right? The idea is that loving father who is spurned by his ungrateful child, and it hurts. And that's the idea, it, 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 that, that God is, is wounded, emotionally speaking, if you will, at our rebellion against him. And so 
This, he says, they rebelled, vexed his spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. This is, again, a commentary on multiple places throughout uh, Hebrew history where God had to turn against his people for the purpose of correction. It's discipline. It's not merely punitive, right? It's not God merely venting his anger, but rather he is constructive in the process, as Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. You know, he is a loving father that can be aroused to anger, but his correction is disciplinary. In other words, it has the purpose, the positive purpose of turning us around to get us to come back to him. So we then, we, we see that's, you know, really what Isaiah is going to pray for all the more here in uh, the next section here, well, in chapter 64, we'll get into that in just a second. But notice also verse 14 and verse 12 of our text highlight the motivation behind Isaiah's prayer, namely for Yahweh to make himself a name. Notice again, he says, uh, he led them. So again, he's, he's reminiscing on God's greatness, uh, his faithfulness, his goodness, Israel's rebellion. But then he, he's wanting to remember all of what God has done. The good things, right? That's verse 11 to 14. He says, then he remembered the days of old, Moses, his people saying, where is he that brought them up out of the sea? The shepherd of the flock, where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? Right? The idea is, uh, probably a reference to the Holy Spirit coming in the book of Numbers, right? Filling not only Moses, but the elders of Israel, guiding them, directing them, leading them. Verse uh, 12, he led them by the right hand of Moses and his glorious arm, dividing the water before them. That's obvious reference to the Red Sea crossing, right? This great deliverance. And God did this to make himself an everlasting name. It says at the end of verse 12, he goes on to just continue to describe that Red Sea crossing. He led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness, right? That they should not stumble. That's an interesting word picture, right? Isaiah, the prince of the prophets. But just as easy as it is for the horse to go through the wilderness, God brought them through the deep waters. And the idea is the dividing the Red Sea, walking over on dry land. As a beast goes down into the valley, the spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So did you lead your people to make yourself, notice again the, the emphasis, starting in the end of verse 12 as well as the end of verse 14, to make yourself a glorious name. In other words, I think it's interesting, notice Isaiah here is posturing himself very similar to Moses. Do you remember when, <clears throat> a couple different times, in the period of the Exodus and, and the wilderness wanderings in the book of Numbers, the, the children of Israel were, were going so far in the rebellion that God needed to confront them and at least twice threatened to wipe them out as a people and start over. But Moses stands up and he pleads, that God spare the nation. But the primary argument that Moses uses for God to spare the nation is God's own glory. He says, if you wipe out the people, what will your enemies say? What will the Egyptians say? What will the Canaanites say? They will say that you were strong enough to bring your people out of Egypt, but not strong enough to bring them into Canaan. And of course, his whole concern, his argument is for the glory of God. And of course, God is pleased with that and he, of course, responds to Moses' prayer. But in like manner, Isaiah is taking a play out of Moses' playbook, if you will, right? Uh, pardon the football analogy, right? You with me, Peter? Right? Uh, anyways, yeah. <laughs> but the idea is that we see God saying, okay, uh, I, you know, or Isaiah to God saying, all right, God, your name is at stake. In other words, you just promised us this glorious future. But as he'll admit here in just you know, a couple of paragraphs, we are a very sinful people. But God, please deal patiently with us. 
deal graciously with us. Why? Because your name is at stake. Your promises need to be fulfilled. And so we're going to see that same pattern. And recall, this is the, the grand purpose of God through all redemptive history, all of history in general. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 describes God as the creator of the universe. Not only is he the creator, he's the redeemer, and he does all of this for his own glory, the glory of his name, to reveal himself as the one true and living God. And we're going to get much deeper into that concept in our study of Ephesians chapter 1 in weeks to come. That's centerpiece to Ephesians chapter 1. But notice, we, we see that prayer of remembrance then go into a prayer of petition. Look again at the text. Look at verse 15, chapter 63, verse 15. And let's read down to chapter 64, verse 5. And notice how his prayer continues, but he moves from remembrance to petition. Verse 15, he says, Look down from heaven and behold the habitation of your holiness and of your glory. Where is your zeal and your strength, the sound, uh, sounding of your bowels and of your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Well, that's quite the phrase. We'll come back to it. Doubtless, you are our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us and Israel acknowledge us not, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer. Your name is from everlasting. Uh, it's one of the, well, we'll come back to it, but it's a, it's a pretty riveting passage, particularly when you place it in its Old Testament context, how he, he uh, addresses God as their father. Verse 17, he says, O Lord, why have you made us to err from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake and the tribes of your inheritance. The people of your holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We are thine. You uh, never bear rule over them. That is those people that just conquered us. But he says, you never ruled over them. They are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. I love this verse. It's a very powerful plea for God to act in the present. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might flow down at your presence as when the melting fire burned and the fire caused the waters to boil to make thy name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did terrible things, which we look not for, you came down, the mountains flowed at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither has the eye seen, O God, beside you, that uh, what he has prepared for him that waits for him. You meet him that rejoice, uh, rejoice, rejoices and work righteousness, those that remember you in your ways." pause there. So that's the first portion of verse five. And then we'll see the transition to the latter, you know, part of his prayer at the uh, end of verse five there and forward. Now notice this is again, really the, the, the center of his prayer. This is the petition. This is kind of the, you know, the heartbeat, if you will, of his petition, where his prayer is the petition. And what's interesting is beginning here in verse 15 of chapter 63, Isaiah issues a prayer that Yahweh would once again act in and through history on behalf of Israel. It's pretty obvious, right? That's his petition. Look down from heaven. Behold the habitation of your holiness and of your glory. He's referring there probably to the temple and the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem. And he asks God, with these rhetorical questions. We see this many times throughout the Psalms, for instance, where the, uh, the psalmist or uh, someone praying and petitioning God will do so with these rhetorical questions. Where, for instance, Isaiah says, where is your zeal and your strength? Right? In other words, and he's gonna, and he just talked about it in the last few verses, right? 11, 12, 13, 14. He talked about God's past deliverances, what God has done through the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, whatever. He says, but where are you now? 
right? That's what he's asking for. And he says, where's the sounding of your bowels and the mercies toward me? Right? That's a very common Hebraism. We see it in both Old and New Testaments, right? The idea of the bowels of compassion is the, the Hebrew people are very concrete people in the sense that they're, they take abstract ideas like love or compassion and they make them concrete. They, they, they bring them into the realm of reality. That's something that we can sense with our five senses. And when they take the idea of compassion, they will often describe that as the, the moving uh, you know, of the bowels. In other words, <laughs> that's what, quite the picture, right? The bowel movement, if you will. But the idea is that we still use similar terms today, right? I've, I've likened like the whole idea of the butterflies in the stomach sort of idea. It's that deep-seated emotion that, that, you know, that feeling that you get in your guts when you have a welling up of emotion. And that's the, that's how the Hebrew people would describe a genuine uh, spirit of compassion that moves you to act, you do something, and that sort of compassion is, of course, what is what he's here longing for. Did you have a hand up? Well, I just gave a comment that I was reading a book about a missionary who came a long time ago, and they tried to teach milk, and isn't that true yeah in our culture we, we we talk about our heart or something like that right and to their culture they'd be like well what's you know that makes no sense we're talking about the guts right or you know <laughs> or this culture you said new guinea was it what did you say New Guinea, their throat was there, you know, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, see, and that's exactly, it illustrates the point. Different cultures will, will express it different ways. And we are a very Greco-Roman, you know, our culture kind of comes, you know, the Gre- Greco-Roman really shifted the idea to more of the heart of the mind, you know, and that's kind of where, we, you know, that's where our culture comes from. But the point is, we see that Isaiah here is asking God, where is that compassion that we've seen in the past? Where is your zeal, your strength? He's asking for God to act. Now, in verse 16, notice we have the first two of three references to God as Father. The the last one will come in chapter 64 and verse 8. We haven't read that yet, but we're getting to it. Three times in this prayer, Isaiah is going to call God our Father. One commentator, a guy by the name of Kidner, says this. He says, this is this repeated plea, quote, gives this prayer its special intensity as the sense of estrangement struggles with that of acceptance, end quote. In other words, do you see, I like his observation, is that Isaiah here, there's this tension that exists between him acknowledging that they, as, as a people, Israel, are rebellious, right? That's verse, what, uh, uh, 10, Right? We've rebelled against God. We've grieved, vexed His Holy Spirit. We have wounded Him and brought Him to the opposite side, or we have left God, rather, and He, he has now become our enemy. And yet, He's still our Father. He's the one who birthed us. He's the one who created us. And so He says, there's this tension between this feeling of estrangement that we have from God because of our rebellion, and yet that acceptance that we have with God because he is our creator and our redeemer. And so he's playing upon that. He's asking God and he's, he's addressing God as his father to try and conjure up those bowels of mercies and compassion that he just was looking for in the previous verse. 
So verse 17 then makes us think of Isaiah's commission and warning that he had back then, that through his verbal ministry, the people would become hardened in their sin. Reread verse 17. He says, O Lord, why have you made us err from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake and the tribes of your inheritance. In other words, he's saying, Lord, why have you made us err from your ways and and hardened our heart? Well, recall, God predicted this would happen. Back when he commissioned Isaiah in chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, he says, you go forth and you preach. But when you preach, when God sends forth his word, many people will refuse to respond. However, when they refuse to respond, they will become hardened in their sin to the point that they may become incapable of response in a positive sense, right? That's the idea. Is Isaiah is, is here recording, in a sense, the fulfillment of what God predicted would happen all the way back in Isaiah chapter 6. It, and Isaiah has been faithful to his ministry and to his commission and what God called him to do. But the more he preaches, the harder the hearts become. And so he's saying, and again, at the end of the verse, he's asking the Lord to return. Or as he says, return for your servant's sake and the tribes of uh, your inheritance. Now, the idea here is, is, again, he's asking for God to come back. Probably this might be a reference to the Shekinah or the Shekinah glory. And the idea is that we've seen this several times throughout the book of Isaiah, right? It comes up all the more in Ezekiel. But the idea is that the the glory of God in the, the temple, in the midst of his people, is a picture of peace, shalom. Their relationship is good. But when the children of Israel rebel against God and they reject him and they spurn his grace then there's a separation between him and his people. Sometimes that's a very visible, literal separation. Like when Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees everybody, right, uh, partying with the golden calf. And then, of course, we have the judgment that takes place. But then he goes outside the camp. Moses takes his tent outside the camp and the presence of God removes itself from the camp. He will not be with his people anymore. He has to go to the outside. And that picture we see throughout Israeli history. We see the prophetic books predicting, and Ezekiel later recording and actually you know, describing the departure of God's glory from the midst of his people. But here, when Isaiah is praying, he, he may well be referencing uh, the return of that glory, saying, Lord, come back. Now, a couple of, let me make this observation from verse 15 and verse 18. There's... And, I, and I'm highlighting here in the comments, verse 18 in particular, but we saw it just again in the previous, you know, verse 18 or 15. But verses 15 and 18 are one of many places in these chapters, this latter third of the book of Isaiah from chapter 40 to 66, which shows that Isaiah, who himself, remember the historic context, Isaiah is living more than 100 years before the Babylonian captivity. Nevertheless, he's writing prophetically to prepare that future generation of exiles for the Babylonian captivity. Okay. Are you with me? Think think about it. He says in verse 18, the people of your holiness have possessed but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. Wait, wait a minute. When Isaiah is alive and well, is the temple still standing? Yeah, it hasn't been destroyed yet. Isaiah will die before the temple is destroyed. But do you see the point? Is he is praying this in light of the predictions that just came, which have predicted the Babylonian exile, the destruction of the temple, and that you know these these uh, that future generation of Jews will be sitting in Babylon, praying this prayer. Does that make sense? 
So he's praying this prayer prophetically. And in a sense, he's giving a future generations the words to say when they are in exile and the temple has been destroyed and they're longing for return. Does that make sense? This is one of those passages that really is fascinating, but it helps kind of, you know, bring into focus. It, it, it brings the lens into focus as to how prophecy works. You know, Isaiah is seeing visions of the future and he's prompted to pray, but he's praying even in light of those future events that haven't even happened yet. So it's, it's profound when you, when you try and put that together and think through that. But Isaiah then admits in verse 19 that he feels as if the nation of Israel is no longer the chosen people, that they're no longer distinct as God called them back in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 16, but that they are like the rest of the Gentile nations. He says, we are thine, verse 19. You never ruled over them. They were not called by your name. In other words, do you see what, what he's, he's struggling with here is that God has allowed other people, Gentiles, to come in and to conquer and tear down the sanctuary and etc. to conquer his people, Israel. And so he's feeling this, this tension, as we you know, as Kidner put it moments ago, that, that feeling of estrangement that wait, I thought we were your people, but now you are favoring, letting uh, you know, nations that are foreign, Gentile nations, you're letting them succeed over your own people. Now, of course, he's gonna come, you know, to the the point here in just a minute, in the next paragraph, when he acknowledges the sin, their own sinfulness and why God has to do this, he's already alluded to it back in you know verse ten. But do you see the tension? He says, "Oh man, we were yours. We are your people. You didn't rule over them, right? They're not your people. The Babylonians, right? The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. Pick your you know your foreign Gentile nations that have come in and conquered Israel." He says, "They're not your people." But he's pleading with God to act, which is what happens in the next section. All right, chapter 64, verses 1 to 5, we read it just a moment ago, but this is really the climax of Isaiah's prayer. Here, he longs for Yahweh to act and asserts that Yahweh saves those who trust in him. This is really uh, the climax of the prayer, where he says in verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might flow at your presence. This is really cool. But verse 1 graphically conceives of the very heavens being rent, being torn by Israel's God and his eagerness to be once more in the midst of his people, right? The idea is that he, he's praying that God would have the same sense of urgency that Isaiah has. Remember, he asked in verse 17 that God would return. And the idea is that he's, because his people have forsaken him, he has had to withdraw from his people. But in his eagerness, in his desire to answer Isaiah's prayer, he, Isaiah pictures God as ripping the heavens apart in order to hasten his, his entrance, his re-entrance, if you will, back to his people to come to their aid, to be re reunited with them. It's really a very graphic image. And he says that, he says, may you rend the heavens and come down. May the mountains flow at your presence. Now that idea of the mountains flowing is probably allusion to Sinai, the revelation that God made uh, to his people on that mountain. That revelation when God showed up and the mountain burst into flame and it describes how the people trembled at his presence. And yet here, Isaiah is asking God to do it again. But when he does it again, it's not his people that will tremble at his presence. Rather, it'll be his enemies. Look again at these verses. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, 
the mountains might flow at your presence. And when the melting fire burns, as when the melting fire burns, the fire causes the waters to boil to make your name known to who? Your adversaries. Again, don't forget, this prayer is in light of the, the subsequent, you know, or the previous uh, prophecy. What was the prophecy? That God is going to come trample his enemies and their blood is going to spatter on his garments, right? We talked about that last week. That's the prophecy. That's the prediction. So now Isaiah is saying, Lord, do that. And when you show up, just like you did on Mount Sinai, and the mountain burst into flame and your people trembled at your presence, do it again. But this time, your enemies will tremble at your presence. He says again, verse three is kind of repetitive. He's just emphatically, you know, repeating the same points. He says, when you did terrible things, the idea of terrible is not evil, but the idea is they're awesome. They cause terror in those who behold them. The concept there, he says, when you do, when you did terrible things, which we look not for, you came down, the mountains flowed at your presence. And then he says, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither has I seen, O God, beside you, what you have prepared for him that waits for him. You meet him that rejoices and works righteousness, those that remember you in your ways. What verse four and five celebrate is that God is the God of the unexpected and the supernatural. You may be, you may recognize this as I read through that 64.4. Isaiah 64.4 is quoted by the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, where he makes the same point. He makes the point that God is a God who can reveal himself. He's a God who can invade human history. He is a God who can surprise us with his supernatural capabilities and his willingness to come and, and come to the aid to those who wait upon him. As it says at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5, he describes that God, since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived with the ear or uh, seen with the eye, O God, besides you, what you have prepared for him that waits for him. Those who trust God can see God work in astounding ways. That's what Isaiah is saying. Those who wait on God, or as he says at the beginning of verse 5, you meet him, you come to the aid of those that rejoice and work righteousness, those that remember you in your ways. In other words, he's talking about those who are faithful to God, those who trust in him, those who come to God out of faith. He says, when you come to God in that way, he says, it's astounding what God can do. And no one is ever, as he says, eye has not seen, ears here, mind has not conceived what God has in store for those who wait upon him. It's amazing. And we could go throughout the history of Israel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They just decided to trust God. They had no idea that they were going to be delivered from that fiery furnace. They were just going to be, they just said, hey, right? remember their answer to Nebuchadnezzar? They said, we're, our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing. And Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, and he throws them in, and then voila, they come walking back out a little while later, Right? I mean, it's like, what? But who saw that coming? Nobody saw that coming. But that's Isaiah's point, is God can do that. And he does it whenever he wants. He's the one who sovereignly, providentially decides, but he's the one who can come to the aid of his people. And that's what Isaiah is asking for. Lord, do it again. You've done it before, do it again. That's what he's praying for. So how does Isaiah end his prayer? Okay, stick with me. We got the final eight minutes, right? The countdown is on, right? Set your clock. 
But we have the final third of this prayer, which is his prayer of penitence. Look at verse 5, the latter half. We're going to start 5b and read through the the, uh, end of the chapter, verse 12. He says this, Behold, you are wroth. Why? For we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You're familiar with that verse. We quote it a lot, right? This is one of the more profound places in the Old Testament that describes the sin nature of humanity. But he says, we're all as an unclean thing. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We do all fade as a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There is none that calls upon your name, that stirs up himself to take hold of you. For you have hid your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are, third time now, he calls God, our Father. You are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. No, he's mixing metaphors here, but the Father and potter have a similar idea. He says, and you are, uh, and we all, the work of your hand. Verse 9, be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech you, we are all your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness, Zion is a wilderness, Jerusalem is desolation, our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire. Notice again, he's praying in light of that future reality of the destruction of the temple. He says, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you refrain yourself for these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very sore? And he ends it. He ends his prayer with that, uh, those rhetorical questions. Now, we're going to comment on this, but next week we're going to see verse 65, verse 1, chapter 65, 1. It says, I am sought of them that ask not for me, etc. It's God's response. God answers. He responds to Isaiah. And that gives us the final two sections or two chapters of the book. The final section of Isaiah is God answering Isaiah's prayer and telling Isaiah what he will do in the future. But notice... Let's put this together, all right? Now, I now have six minutes, and then we'll be done. While Isaiah longs for God to act, that's what we just read, right? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's verses one to five. While Isaiah longs for God to act, he then admits the present condition of Israel is one of unrighteousness. So he pleads for mercy. That's the whole point of this section. He admits, God, I want you to work, but I realize why you're not. Because we are filthy, we are wicked, we are rebellious against you. So he pleads, God, forgive us. And he pleads for mercy. Verse 5 through 7, as Grogan puts it, present a many-sided doctrine of sin, remarkably full for an Old Testament passage. This is, in fact, one of the passages that Paul will quote. Do you remember in Romans chapter 3 when Paul quotes like 10 passages from the Old Testament, one right after the other? just to declare, to prove without beyond any shadow of a doubt that humanity is totally wicked and lost in sin? Well, this is one of the passages Paul quotes. Why? Because it's so good to make that point. The many-sided doctrine of sin, as Grogan puts it, remarkably full for an Old Testament passage. Sin is a continual practice. It's a defiling, destructive practice. It creates a barrier between God and man, both from man's side, for we do not want to pray, and from God's side, because he won't hear us. That's a problem. That's verses four, five, and six. Or I'm sorry, uh, six, seven, and eight. Well, five, six, and seven. I can't count today. 
It's verses 5, 6, and 7. All right, I just need to slow down a little bit. But he says in verse 8, Quite suddenly then, he moves from the thought of God as the moral governor to whom his people are responsible to the father potter who brought them into being. Notice, again, back to verses 5, 6, and 7, he admits their sinfulness in some of the most incredible language anywhere in the scripture, right? You're all familiar with this, but oh, those of you who are not, you know, here you go. Verse 6 describes us as an unclean thing, all our righteousness as filthy rags, right? You heard this before. The term filthy rags in Hebrew is a very unflattering term. It's actually the term for used menstrual cloths, all right? It's that thing that is good for burning and nothing else, all right? That's the idea, is he says that's, and that's the best that we have to offer to God. Our righteousness before God is as an unclean thing. And he says, we do fade as a leaf, Right, contrast that. We could go on and on. We don't have the time, but you can contrast that with a number of other passages, right, like Psalm one, etc., Jeremiah seventeen, that describes the those who trust in God, who who meditate in the law of God and follow God, are someone whose leaf will not wither. But here it's the opposite. They are a fading leaf that the wind blows away. Right, it's a really picturesque uh, portion of the scripture condemning us because of our sinfulness. But then notice, again, verse 8, you have the transition. But now, O Lord, he acknowledges this is who we are apart from God and God's grace. This is who we are in and of ourselves, our sinfulness. But, Lord, you are our father and our potter. Right? The idea is that he's acknowledging that God is the one who brought them into being. He's the God who, again, he's, he's trying to conjure up those feelings of compassion from God. Right? That, Lord, you are the one that created us. You are our Father. You're the one who shapes us and molds us and fashions us like the potter does the clay. What's interesting is this, this picture of the potter and the clay imagery. You're familiar with this, but Jeremiah and Paul in the New Testament are both going to develop this same analogy, and they're going to make it famous. Both of these come later, of course, than Isaiah. But Jeremiah will, will uh, a couple generations later, and then Paul, many years after that, develop the analogy of the potter and the clay, both to do, do so in contexts that, just as here, present God as sovereign in the, in the realm of sin and judgment. That he is the one who is the one who brought them into being, but he's also the one who can bring judgment upon them, because he is not only their father, but also the potter. So what happens next? Verse 9, he says in, in well, really, the latter section, verse 9 to 12, he casts himself, Isaiah casts himself upon the mercy of God. And he simply asks for God's mercy, calling on him to remember not their sins, but their standing as his people. Look again at verse 9. Be not wroth very sore, O Lord, remember, uh, neither remember uh, iniquity forever. Again, he says, don't remember our iniquities. Rather, end of the verse, I, we beseech you, for we are all your people. Remember that we are your people. And the concept is, again, he's, he's pleading for God, trying to you know, arouse God's sense of mercy and compassion and pity. So he ends, verse 12, the final verse, implores God to intervene, to bring to his people that forgiveness and salvation that has been promised over and over again in this book, the book of Isaiah, especially since chapter 40. He begs God, with these rhetorical questions. Will you refrain yourself for these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very sore? Right? He says, are, are you going to do this forever? Are we always going to be in a state of judgment and receiving God's wrath? 
you know, again, rhetorical question. The point is, he's saying he's asking for God to end that period of wrath and judgment and to bring, of course, the uh, the salvation and redemption that he's asking for. Now, I mentioned this a moment ago, but this sets us up for next week, and then we're then we're done. The final two chapters of Isaiah's prophecy are going to show us how God responds to this marvelous prayer. As Isaiah bends his knees before God, if you will, and he begs for God to work and intervene, when the heavens come down, etc., God responds and he says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And these are, again, arguably the two most climactic chapters in the book where it describes God's ultimate renewal, not just of Israel, but all things, what God has in store for all of human history. It's remarkable. But it is given in light of Isaiah's prayer, which I think it should tutor us, right? That should teach us some things. It's how we too ought to be fervent and urgent in our prayer life, even in light of what God has already promised and predicted will happen. But we pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right, let's, let's be active in that regard, eager to see God's fulfillment of his promises. Simone. His prayer wasn't answered until the time of the revelation, revelation, right? Because although he brought the people back, he didn't come back with them. Right. No, that's absolutely true. So, and, and we'll get into this next couple of weeks. We'll see God answers Isaiah's prayer by showing Isaiah what will happen. But you're right, it doesn't ultimately happen until Book of Revelation, you know, stuff. It's, it's, we're still awaiting the fulfillment of these promises, right? So, yeah, excellent point. Peter. You mentioned uh, Rogan a couple times. Maybe you've mentioned, you say who he is? Uh, he is the commentator through the book of Isaiah uh, on the, from the Expositor's Biblical Commentary series. Yeah, him, I'd say uh, Martin, uh, Oswald. Uh, uh, not Oswald Chamber. I know I about said Chambers, but it's it's uh, John Oswald. Oswald's his last name. Um, Motier or Motier. There's about four or five guys that I, you know I consult and say these are kind of the top guys on Isaiah. So, yeah, if you're looking for Isaiah resources, come talk to me. All right, we're gonna have a sit down library conversation, right? Because that's a lot of fun, right? Preach good good preaching materials just. It's like, I'd like to be a librarian. There's a lot of, you know, overlap there. Like, I just like reading books and recommending them. So anyways, all right, I'm out of time. So let's pray and we'll transition. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for this prayer of Isaiah that teaches us how we too ought pray in light of the coming of Christ, the promise of ultimate renewal and the intention of redemption. Lord, we long for that day. We pray for that day. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to to have a sense of urgency in light of it, that you would help us to recognize, as Isaiah did, our own sinfulness, that you are a God who can and will work, and yet the thing that slows you down the most is our sinfulness, our unwillingness to pray, to be faithful to you so you can work in and through us. God, help us. Help us to see how we are the biggest thing holding back, Uh, Lord, what you are trying to do. And we ask that you would help us, like Isaiah, to humble ourselves, admit our sin, cast ourselves upon your mercy, to eagerly and fervently, urgently pray, and long and wait and watch for the fulfillment of your promises. Bless us, we pray, next couple of weeks as we 
look at these final two chapters of Isaiah and we contemplate all those promises that you have in store for creation and the world and the cosmos. Lord, may you birth within us that sort of eagerness to see your fulfillment. So Lord, we commit the remainder of our study to you and pray your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen.